As we begin the final episode of the Docu Podcast, Shadow of a Mercenary, we sure hope you've enjoyed the journey. On behalf of Mr. Verlin Seifkees and myself, Kevin E. West, we deeply thank you. And now, for the conclusion to Shadow of a Mercenary. Verlin, we made it, man. Holy shit. <laughs> Here we are, 22 episodes chronicling your life as an accidental mercenary double agent for the U.S. government. All because of jackass bankers and one faithful geographical decision. My brother, it has been quite a ride, so thank you. And to all those who've listened the whole way, we hope you've enjoyed it. And let us begin to end, shall we? Uh, for memoir's sake, did you, Verlin, by chance, ever have written notes or written log or a diary, say, about Bill Cross Sr.? No, no diary, no log. I just uh, what I remember, bits and pieces of shit that happened that stick out in my mind, you know. But so I didn't you, create a log. And you never recorded any conversations or meetings with, with Senior, correct? No, the government was doing plenty of that. I never recorded any of Senior. Yeah, that's funny, but at the time you didn't know that, so that doesn't really apply. However, a few episodes ago, you did mention having a little black book of some sort. Did you literally have a little black book that you carried around or gave to Patricia like a memo pad? Yeah, it's about a half inch thick. I still got it. It's right up here in the cabinet. Are you shitting me? No, I got the numbers <laughs> for the Cali cartel, the Medellin cartel. Uh, you still have the little black book? <laughs> yeah, got it all in there. Numbers for the FBI, customs. Oh, that is awesome. Okay, hang on, full stop. Everybody calm down. Verlin, you're telling me that as we sit here recording this, you still have your little black book. Yeah, I can go get it out of the cabinet and get my cell phone and call a Kelly cartel on it if you'd like. <clears throat> I, I tell you what, just for safety's sake, let's not do that. How about let's just keep yeah. it there as a, uh, keep it next to your gun. How about that? The gun's right below it. Do you know how many times as an agent, double agent, a mercenary for the government, did you fear for your life? Or was that just something that was a, you didn't really, you weren't ever really scared because obviously being kidnapped would have been one, but you just kind of consider that a, a, a given as part of the job, right? Right. I never was afraid of that. What upset me was, damn, I can't find the strip and I'm about out of fuel. That pissed me off and upset me. But no, I was never worried about dying doing it. I just didn't worry about that. It didn't bother me. And still to this day, people in and around your life still just basically ignore the truth of these 15 years of your life as if it didn't happen. Ah, uh, there was one World War II veteran. He came up to me and he says, that a way to go, getting them, go get them. But he was, he understood. He was a World War II veteran. And other than that, and most people don't even know what happened. They don't know how much I worked for the government. They don't know that all the things I did for the government on a good nature. And they, they've got their little circle in life that they rotate in and it's out of their comfort zone. And it's like knowing me. Well, here was me at a little age and I don't have the damn pictures because they stole them. But you know, we used to have birthday parties together at five and six years old. Everybody got together and had the birthday parties. And that's where my daughter got her middle name from my aunt that organized all that shit. There's one in one family that does everything all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and I remain fairly close, and his wife talks to me. And who's the one that still talks to you? Oh, Dennis. But uh, the rest of them won't have a thing to do with you, and they don't know anything about it. 
Yes, it is always terribly sad when folks you're close to seem to forget or ignore who you really are. So back then, you, you bump along through the rest of 91 and into 92, and unfortunately, your mother passes. You're crop dusting again, I think, and around 96, 97, you meet the woman who is actually in your life today. Tell us how you met Sonia. Well, I wanted somebody my own age for a change, somebody that grew up at the same time here that I had a lot of common with, that had extra energy. You know, I didn't want some typical low-energy person. I'd worked out the health club and stopped into a bar to have a couple beers. That's what you do after you work out a health club, keep your muscles loose. Absolutely. I was talking to this couple, that I'm, and I said, you know, I'd like to find somebody that I don't have to worry about, that doesn't have kids, that I don't have to deal with, and that's familiar with our age group and the things we're all familiar with. And they said, oh, we got just a person for you. And I said, really? So they gave me Sonia's phone number. And I called her up and I said, hey, you know these two people? Yeah. They should, said I should call and meet you. We have a lot in common. And she didn't want to at first. And they said, all right. So I came over and met her at her house. And uh, we've been together ever since. And do you actually recall, I hate to do this to you, do you actually recall the date of your first date? Oh, hell no. And don't say that in front of her or I'll be in trouble. Well, unfortunately, my friend, you just said this on recording. So this this is going on the podcast, brother. Oh. <laughs> so you're screwed, glued, and tattooed. Well, back to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, looks like it. The good part is the little chapel is still there. So you guys met. Obviously, you hit it off. It went well. Uh, considering what you do now together, how did that come about oh so many years ago? Well, we were at a uh, concert. And I said, I'm getting older, and I was watching the funnel cake line. I said, why don't we just get a funnel cake trailer to substitute our, supplement our Social Security? We can go do some local events. It's only weekend events, you know, a couple days a weekend. So you're in a funnel cake line. I mean, because it's not that everybody does funnel cakes, and you, you say to her you could get the rig and get the setup, and why not? Yeah, she agreed. Well, why not? We both like funnel cakes, and that's how the whole thing started. <laughs> I don't eat them anymore now that I do it. I don't eat them. Once in a while, we might. So, uh, you know, we got that little funnel cake trailer we showed you out in the barn. And that's what we started with. And that was, we started two weeks after 9-11. Wow. You guys started a new business two weeks after 9-11. Selling funnel cakes. Yeah, and we really got inspected. Our first event was a balloon fest, and we had funnel cake powder in there. So people were looking for everything that's a terrorist act. And I thought, oh, they don't get it. Look at all those bags of plastic, that, you know, flour. Funnel yeah, cake. anthrax. Yeah, anthrax. Ah. I mean, this town is so stupid. Do you know what the hair run is, a rabbit hair run like they have in England? Yes, I do. Where they put the flour out, and they fly. oh, they shut the town down. They had their run here in town, and these idiots... They were having their run, and they shut the town down because they thought somebody's running down the street with anthrax, and it was flour for their run. That's awesome. So you guys have been in the funnel cake business for a long time. Yeah, since 2001. You you pick up with the funnel cake concept after 9-11, which is 2001, but coming off of the life that you lived, what did you basically do for a decade, and what did Sonia do for a decade? Well, Sonia sold insurance, and I still kept up with my crop testing. So between the two of us, we, you know, we made a living. Who'd you fly for? John Earhart and Jim Clark. You just did uh, your standard crop testing, or did you supplement that in some other way? 
I lined up acres. I got paid for booking the acres, too. We went out and lining up the acres. So at that point in 1991, Christy would be 21 years old. Did she get married, have kids? She's going to college, going to nursing school. And she graduated from Wichita State as a nurse. Oh, as a nurse? Yeah, she's a nurse here in Newton. She's been a nurse here the entire time. She actually was working there while she was going to college, so she's been a nurse for a long time. Basically, you start a funnel cake business. That's been your life since then. Yes, that's been it. And at no time since basically early 91, have you ever heard from anyone at the federal government or anyone else? No, I haven't. Well, here we go, Verlin. One of the more clouded in mystery parts of your life that occurred right in the middle of this crazy drug-running mercenary scenario was the birth of your son, Eric, with Kathleen, who then basically seemed to shield him from you as a kind of, I guess, I don't know, it ran concurrently with your time in prison. So before we wrap up your story, I want to be sure that we really understand where things were then and where they are today with Eric. Do you know him yeah i know him but he doesn't don't associate i tried to reach out to him two or three times and uh, talk to him and he don't call back or he don't make a point to get on facebook or anything like that i said well do you want to get together before it's too late or get together out here with your sister and your nieces and, and uh, no nothing ever happened of it so i just gave up on it do you blame kathleen for his reticence to have a relationship with you yeah, I think I blame her some. I don't know what the hell she said. She's pretty good at saying things she shouldn't sometimes. So I don't know what the hell she said to him. She treated him like a little boy. I mean, I asked him the last time I talked to him if he's still wearing knee pants. That probably pissed him off. But, you know, I tried to make amends and tried to get to know him or have him come out and know me or come out and go hunting. And no, no luck. So I gave up on it. Well, Verlin, at, at where were you at the time you knew that she was pregnant? Okay. Was he actually born before you went to jail? Yeah. She, he was born right before we got into all this shit, probably a couple months before everything started going to hell. How old was your genetic son, Eric? How old was he when you went to prison? No, he was a year old, right at a year old. So that means that when you got out of prison, he was two and a half or three. Right. So how many times in your life were you in the physical presence of your genetic son, Eric? Oh, four, maybe. Okay. And the last time, how old was he? 12, 13. So the last time you saw him, he was in puberty, for lack of a better phrase. Do you recall any details or specifics about that being an enjoyable visit or not? No, he came down to see me while I was crop dusting after all this was over with. And he came down to see me and some of that got in the middle of it. He was kind of belligerent. He wanted to go home. I said, I can't just spend time with you all day. I got all this work to do. And he was belligerent about that and mouthed it off. So he said, I'll call the cops on you. And I said, no, you won't. So I just put him on a bus and sent his ass home. So that's what I did. I wasn't going to put up with that. I'd had it up for more in my life. I wanted to take him down to the beach, have fun with him, but he's going to have to sit here and wait till I fly two or three loads and spray cotton and then get in the truck and go to the beach. It was only an hour away. I don't know. And then later on in life, I've tried to, like I say, make amends with him. And no. 
and now he's blossomed out i guess i talked to him several times just in the last year and i hadn't talked to him in in 30 years until this last year so you're telling me that you had a child with kathleen but you never got to be a dad no i didn't get to be one and that was kathleen's choice yeah she just put roadblocks up everywhere he's talked to me two or three times on the phone and i talked to him probably two years ago before i had all these surgeries he never called to check on the surgeries he never called to check on anything else so i said why don't you come out and go hunting with me nope so. Well, um, I can only say to you, Verlin, I'm sorry for that because uh, you're talking to somebody who was Eric. What do you feel is the best decision you made in your life, personally? Chrissy being born was my best decision and starting my own business, that was real rewarding. You know, we worked real hard at it. and uh, Starting the own crop dusting business from beginning to end, you felt like somebody. You felt like you were doing something. It felt good to go in and and uh, call up and you know people knew who you were and you just felt like you were somebody you know trying to do something and the farmers knew you and the business people knew you and uh it just felt good doing that through all of this stuff and you've been through a lot from 77 to 92 honestly verlin of all the decisions you've made what is your biggest regret i think the biggest regret is getting divorced from Marianne. Everything was going our way and going good until <clears throat> that happened. And then everything just seemed to go to hell after that. So that would be the biggest thing. So do you feel like, honestly, Verlin, that your life would have would have stayed pretty calm and clean had you guys just stayed married? Is that how you feel? Well, that would have been a lot cleaner. I think she would have kept me out of some of the trouble and problems that we got into, but it was just too much. We, she hit that curve. I'm okay. You're okay. Find your, find yourself. And then she was doing everything to piss me off to prove that she could do that. So now tell me the worst decision you made from the time you met Bill Cross senior, not before, as it relates to your life in this double agent scenario. Oh, meeting him again. That was <laughs> Meeting him, I should have just cut it off right away. And then Carl London talked me into working with him. And that was just not, he was an old moonshiner and everything he did turned to shit. So after I met him the first time, talking to him again was absolutely the worst thing I ever did. I should have just gone home. You know, Verlin, ironically, since I know your story so well, chances are that the fact you were never really concerned about dying is probably one of the reasons you're still alive. And with that said, answer this for the listeners. Besides the flying aspect of being a double agent, what was the one aspect of the job, the position, the challenge that you genuinely enjoyed the most? I guess you could call it a mercenary. There wasn't an element of the job itself, parts of the job, things you had to do that you enjoyed. Besides flying, what did you enjoy the most about your job description? You had to do all these things, meetings, you had to pretend, you had to do all these things. Was there anything about the job description other than the John Wayne philosophy of, I'm being a good guy now, I have integrity? I guess I enjoyed the excitement of being able to do something good and clean everything up. Okay, copy you on that. And so conversely, from the time you met Bill Cross Sr. until the very end, what's the best decision you made related to becoming a double agent? 
working for the federal government, working for the DEA and the FBI and the CIA, that felt good. I was doing, you know, I felt good at what I was doing and I was good at it. I was getting a lot better at it. And I had their respect. I mean, they put a Black Hawk helicopters and AWACS aircraft and I was really doing good at that. And that felt real rewarding to do that. So even though your own government eventually threw you under the bus, you still feel that choosing to be a double agent and working for them was the best decision you made? Yeah, I felt like it cleaned everything up. It should have put me back in good status with people. I thought I should have been respected for Two or three of the agents respected me for it. I mean, Peterson did, but he was not the high up uh, individual. So that's the way I felt about it. Here's a little curveball for you, Verlin. At any time during after Bill Cross Sr., because everything really starts with him, not so much Carl. Did you really ever ponder while making these choices what Christie would do without you? If something happened to you, did you ever think about it? Oh, I thought about it. I thought she'd probably be better off without me. It's kind of what I thought. I was really at a low point in life, and uh, I was really stressed out. I wasn't running on a full head of steam. It was just pure ass turmoil at that particular time. Once you got into it, you just as well did because you're going to get in just as much trouble. So you just want to go through with it. Yeah, I hear you, man. Once you're in deep, well, there you are. Uh, We mentioned it earlier in an episode about my fave story of you being a dad and painting Christie's toenails on the porch. Right. We got a picture of it. You don't have the picture anymore, do you? No, they broke into my building out here. Some crooks did and stole a whole bunch of stuff here two years ago box I had it in. So in 2017, in the middle of nowhere in Kansas where you live today, where we're currently sitting, uh, you lost the famed picture of you painting your daughter's toenails. Yeah, why would they, why they would steal that stuff, I do not know. Well, that's a whole different subject. They may not have realized what was in the briefcase, but that's uh, horribly unfortunate that you, that you lost all that stuff. And that brings us to the end, man. So, production credit was the gas, Carl London was the fuse, and Bill Cross Sr. was the match that lit the explosion that blew up your life. Brother, I have enjoyed getting to know you over the years, and I know that becoming the shadow of a mercenary was certainly not your intent nor your desire. You experienced along the way some incredibly low points, and yet also had many positives too, but you did spend a lot of your time psychologically seeking an exit strategy, which never, no matter what you did, man, seemed to materialize. So often it seemed your life was over, gone. Did you ever ponder suicide? No, all the time. Well, Verlin, it's not real hard to kill yourself when you carry a gun. How come you didn't do it? Good question. I don't know. I was afraid I'd miss You had every chance in the world to take your own life. I'm asking you to dig really deep, something you don't like to do as a man, because I don't buy, that's a bullshit answer I was afraid I'd miss. You can't miss putting it to your forehead or sticking it in your mouth. Oh, I don't know why I didn't do it. Probably because of Chris Deer. Just couldn't do it. Well, I'm making you think about it, making you feel it. Does it feel sitting here right now that it's because of the love of your daughter? You glad today that you have your daughter and you're alive? Of course I am. So, yeah, that's probably the main reason I didn't do it, because other than that, I would, at the time, I wouldn't have had anything else but her. So, yeah.
but you don't recall thinking back on it right now. You don't recall thinking back on it right now, having that conscious emotional feeling of loving your daughter too much to do it. Right. Yeah. Thinking back on it, I do. Yeah. I've never been asked that question before. You could have ended your life a thousand different times over the course of a decade and you didn't. Why not? And the answer is the love of my daughter. Yeah, that's the answer. The love of my daughter. I wouldn't do it because of that. It was stuck around for a long time that way, I guess. When your grandchild was born, don't you look back at that and go, damn, I'm glad I was here for that? Yeah, I've got four of them. I'm glad I'm here for that. So, yeah. Me too, Verlin Siefkees. Me too, man. And there we have it, folks. The dramatic life story of Verlin Siefkees. A simple crop-dusting, ex-Marine, Kansas farm kid who was screwed over in the late 70s by crooked bankers in the Farm Aid era, eventually kidnapped for 28 days by Escobar's cartel during the quote-unquote war on drugs, who managed to escape, keep his family safe, repay his debt to society, and was still ultimately betrayed and dismissed by the very government he'd served to protect. As they say, no good deed goes unpunished. Again, thanks for listening. I've been your host, Kevin E. West, and it's been my esteemed pleasure to be your tour guide along the way. Do share this with friends, family, ask them to subscribe, because someday you'll find Verlin's story on your TV set or in a movie theater near you.